now that we have energy in the room, we're going to make it through a whole book of the Bible in, in 25 minutes. So sit tight. Because I'm scatterbrained, I'm going to do this um, like Nicole Jones does and read and read this morning so that we can fit this whole book of the Bible in 25 minutes. This is the prophet Amos. My first encounter with the prophet Amos was in Montecito, California, 17 years ago. <laughs> As a student at Westmont College, I took a class on the minor prophets in the Old Testament. I really enjoyed the class. Since growing up in the evangelical church, I had not once encountered a minor prophet. Okay, maybe Jonah. But these prophets, they kind of just murdered my understanding of a comfortable civil religion. In a good way. This probably had to do with my heart and mind, but also my immediate surroundings. Montecito is known for its wealth, its ocean views, estates, celebrity homes, second homes, and third homes. To give you a little perspective, I worked a tutoring job at an estate near the college, and I was fired for giving the dog tap water instead of bottled water. I also learned that the bill for fresh flowers at this home was $12,000 per week. So due to my immediate surroundings, I paid very close attention to the minor prophets. They are mind-blowing, they are a mind-blowing reality check for anyone who thinks that they are religious. Amos was my favorite. If Hosea is known for its sexual metaphors, Amos is known for its financial metaphors. The word picture in the opening of chapter 4 has stayed with me ever since college. The cows of Bashan. When Amos was written, the people of Israel had become so comfortably accustomed to their wealth and luxuries, they were ambitious, successful, and their priority was to protect their possessions and keep climbing the ladder. The term cow was used to emphasize their fattened, complacent, and comfortable existence. Their religion had become organized by themselves, for themselves. They disregarded the holiness of God, thus disregarding God's love for all of Earth's inhabitants. To get their attention, Amos calls them cows of Bashan. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on Mount Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring something to drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, the time is surely coming upon you, when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. What struck me then, as a college student, and what strikes me today, was surprisingly not the gory metaphor of fish hooks at the end here. No. What struck me was that this was particularly addressed to women like myself. Privileged and entitled with the comforts and luxuries that allow life to be easy. Women, I know you're going to get irritated here, but before we get all angry at patriarchy for this insult, let the message sink in. Hear it. As a North American woman, I heard this 17 years ago, and I hear it again now. 
Men, sit tight. There's a lot of insults coming at you from Amos, so we'll get there. Since Amos will be a hard message for us to hear today, let's start by admitting that when we are called out by the scriptures, we are tempted to get all judgy and focus on what's external. When I heard this, when I heard this message in college, I started seeing cows of Bashan everywhere. Cows of Bashan at my school, cows of Bashan all over Montecito, cows of Bashan at the mall, cows of Bashan at the beaches, cows of Bashan at airports and restaurants, entitled, privileged women. They are everywhere. There is no shortage of cows of Bashan. (laughs) But what about me? What about my people? Ancient women? Modern women? Christian women? (laughs) If you look at me right now, my place in society, my place in the church and in history, my economic group, this is a message for us, for my family, for our people, for Christianity, our cities, Monrovia, Pasadena, Los Angeles. If Amos resorts to calling the women of Israel animals in chapter 4 of this short book, What words and warnings had not been heard leading up to this point? How did we get here? Is there any hope or grace along the way? Or is the entire message of the prophet about Israel's judgment? First off, Amos is a shepherd by vocation. He was not a professional prophet in Israel. He wasn't trying to climb a religious success ladder or get published with his book or hold a high place in the temple. In fact, Like most of God's prophets, Amos is not popular with the religious crowd. He wasn't in his time, he hasn't been throughout history, and I guarantee you this message for us today will not be popular either. And fair warning, most of the nine chapters of this book uh, are about judgment. This point in Israel's history marks a major disconnect between the people, the land, the society as a whole, and the Lord God, their loving creator. The covenant established by God with the people had been violated a thousand times over. But as we move forward, instead of hearing Amos as an angry man scolding an entire society, try to imagine instead a very emotional, distraught, saddened, weeping prophet who was sent to give fair warning from the merciful and compassionate God, who is at this point just devastated by the oppression and the empty religion that was causing it. If you get a chance to read the entire book, you'll notice that Amos is smart. His rhetoric and reasoning with the kingdom of Israel shows that his message goes much deeper, much further than what today would be maybe a good tweet or a provocative Facebook post or whichever awe-inspiring source of information we can dig up. Amos has been called the herald of the advent of God or the one who, in body, mind, emotion, and action, proclaims the coming of God, the Holy One, whose love and mercy interrupts our regular run of life its ambitions, and the the very real troubles in our world. The call to repentance for the people of God in ancient Israel held much more depth and pursuit than the instant communication outlets of our day. Whole lives and communities were meant to be moved towards the merciful God 
not merely personal and cerebral archiving of a good book or some awesome posts that, for a time, inspire us. Humans, we resist change. They resisted change then, and we resist it now. So why would an ordinary shepherd leave his community and livelihood in the lush pastures of Judah to travel to the northern kingdom of Israel to give this dooming message? Similar to the prophet Hosea, it all began with a vision of a lion. Remember that a couple weeks ago? The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah and in the days of King Jeroboam, son of Joash of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds wither and the top of Carmel drives up. Have you ever been at a zoo and heard a lion roar? The whole place gets quiet. Everyone rushes to see the lion exhibit to see what happens next. The sound is so penetrating that you have nowhere else to be at that moment. But you draw close and you pay attention. This happened the last time my kids and I were at the zoo. We were way across the giraffe area when we heard the lions roar. We rushed to see. Then we witnessed one lion simply lie down and snuggle with the other lion. It was not what we had expected to see. We had thought he might be hungry or angry. But there were these lions playing and being companions to one another as the one had let out the roar. For a shepherd like Amos, to receive a vision of a lion, it is a little bit different. Amos is probably alert, afraid, protective of his sheep. He pays close attention, and he has to prepare and expect for much more of a fight than the two lions that we saw snuggling at the zoo. In his opening chapter, the divine revelation comes from the mouth of the lion. The lion is roaring at the sins of the nations. We won't read it all, but it is, it is descriptive of the world we live in, our total depravity, the troubles that humans endure, and the troubles that humans cause. You may hear the lion's roar as protective love for all peoples of the earth, or you may hear it as judgment. The backdrop of violence and injustice at this time in Israel proves both. God is roaring judgment on those who oppress and destroy, but the lion's roar is also of love for the ones who are being crushed, made helpless, and those who acknowledge their need for a savior. So with all of the troubles to speak of, Amos does a roll call of the worst crimes against humanity. This is in chapter 1. Nothing is left out. Foreign invasions, the buying and selling of human beings, slavery, sexual violence, oppression of the poor, mass murders, military campaigns, corruption of kings, judges, and priests, and violence against women. Who is guilty of these sins? Amos names them. One by one, Damascus, Gilead, Hazael, Ben-Hadad, Beth-Eden, Gaza, Edom, Ashdod, Ekron, Tyre, Teman, Bozrah, Rabbah, Moab, Kariath. But what about God's holy people, Israel? Were they left off the list? What about Judah? 
The people of God are good, right? They have the historical favor of an everlasting covenant with God. But Amos continues, Judah and Israel, the two kingdoms of Israel divided, still both considered the covenant people of God, the redeemed, those who have had divine revelation of the love of God, the favor of God, the deliverance of God, and God's salvation. Israel and Judah are not innocent. From Amos, they receive as much judgment as the other nations in this roll call. And then, a whole seven more chapters later of judgment, including natural disasters that erase any ability for human control or safety. Thus the Lord says, For three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But they have been led astray by the same lies after which their ancestors walked. So I will send a fire on Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell, righteous, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They who trample the head of the poor into dust of the earth and push the afflicted out of the, out of the way. Father and son go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments they take in and pledge. And in the house of their God they drink wine bought with fine they imposed. What are we dealing with here? And throughout the remainder of the book of Amos, these are financial metaphors for Israel's sin. To try to fully understand this, I had some help from Old Testament scholar, J.A. Motyer, who gives clear context for these two kingdoms of Israel um, when Amos spoke and wrote. We might be surprised at the context. While the wars raged throughout nations surrounding them, Judah and Israel, the southern and northern kingdoms, were actually experiencing a, a period of peace and prosperity and national stability. King Uzziah in the south and Jeroboam II in the north enjoyed long reigns as they watched their affluent societies profit from commercial structures and increased security. For the people of Israel, things were good. But Amos saw beyond the outward appearances. He paid closer attention to the ways that sin was revealed from the depth of their hearts. And he paid some painfully close attention to the ways that religious people their greed and self-indulgence. It was clear to Amos at this time that a lot of injustice hides behind religion. God may well have said at that point, I hate religion. Oh wait, he did. <laughs> I hate. I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fattened animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In the context of Amos, 
The people of God had lost their social and moral conscience. Their outward forms of religion were completely misaligned with any inward care, closeness, or commitment to God's purposes outside of themselves. While they were marked by ambition, affluence, profit, pleasure, and achievement, they had lost truth found in a holy God's love and care for all of creation. There was breakdown in both social and personal vitality caused by disregard for those among them who were poor and exploited. Scholars identify three themes of wrongdoing throughout the book of Amos. Number one, the primary importance of seeking material possessions, which is also known as covetousness. Number two, the irrelevance of the rights of other people, also called indifference and oppression. And number three, the unrestricted promotion of self-advantage, which is called self-importance. When humans let covetousness, oppression, and self-importance guide them, they lose all marks of genuine love, mercy, and right relationships with God and with each other. As Amos reveals the sins of other nations surrounding them, he shows that Israel, too, more than ever, is in need of God's mercy and redemption. What makes Israel's case worse was, is that God had already established a direct and unique covenant of faithfulness throughout the troubles of their own history, through their own mistreatment and bondage, and with their own familial and communal identity. God had drawn so close to Israel that they of all nations would forever know and understand the love of an active God who rescues. But instead of the companionship with God, Israel had developed a dependency on its own natural abilities and acquired skills, self-advancement, political allegiances, and economic causes. And like most humans, they were conditioned to believe that those things will sustain them. But why was Amos so hard on the women? This is patriarchy, we might say. Women can't be responsible for oppression of the poor. It's the man's fault, right? Well, in a patriarchal society, women were considered the heartbeat of society. The womb, a symbol of the future, the lifeline. It has been said of those times, if women lose their conscience and moral compass as nurturers in touch with the deepest needs of reality of the social structure, then all hope is lost. Therefore, since Amos is describing a society of people who had storehouses full of luxuries that had become normalized, vanity, self-promotion, pride, entitlement, became the regular run of life. So if in this case, the temperature of a moral condition of a society was taken with the women folk and found to be low, definitely frozen, maybe near zero, then clearly the centigrade or Celsius numbers of the men folk were well below zero. Amos had got, had to get their attention. God was kind of just over it. Herds of fattened cattle resting in a pasture, 
asking for more wine, which symbolizes the numbing of body and mind. That's our word picture for religion of that time. All nine chapters of Amos are concerned about the complacency and oppression. You drink wine by the bowlfuls. You use your finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be the first to go into exile. And then, in chapter 7, there's this priest named Amaziah. He couldn't take it anymore. He tried to make a deal with the king to deport Amos to the southern kingdom. He simply said, don't prophesy anymore. He told the king, the land cannot bear all of his words. So the story of Israel is super discouraging for us, and if we are to see this as a diagnosis of a society, then we can ask what would be the treatment plan for Israel's healing. Amos made it unfortunately clear that the people of Israel could not turn things around at this point. Just years ahead of them, into their future, there would be a violent and ruthless invasion by the Assyrians in the northern kingdom, later followed by the period of exile for God's people in the southern kingdom. Only if they could improve their vision and their hearing quick enough to change the course of history. But they can't. Right, but right smack in the middle of this book of judgment is a little reminder of what's important. Seek good and not evil, that you may live, so the Lord God of hosts will be with you. Just as you have said, hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Jacob. It sounds simple for them, right? A little later on, another nudge for Israel's healing in Amos can be paraphrased as this. Stop making your religion a spectacle. The parties, the performances, the shrines, the structures made of brick. Instead, pay attention to the things that God is most concerned about and do the work of justice. Imagine having a great and luxurious wedding followed by an absent and meaningless marriage. The ceremonial high places and the religious customs of the covenant are real, but a covenant is only sustained in places of ordinary daily choices, choosing life, seeking the good of everyone, day after day. Having comforts and good emotions does not guarantee companionship. Companionship is a daily choice. It is work, and it, it is benefits and blessings which God from all eternity purposed should be theirs. I may have mixed up my notes here. Hold on one second. So what happens when we read. Whew, there we go. Um, the final picture of healing in Amos is way at the end in chapter 9. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them upon their land, and they shall never again be plucked up out of the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. This little part at the end is evidence in the Hebrew language that God 
is himself repentant and sorry for the wrath, the words of wrath that are revealed up until this point in this book by this prophet. God is always interested in the healing and restoration of the nations. And for the Christian church hearing this message today, what wisdom can we glean from this ancient prophet and what lessons can we learn from complacent people? Our own healing and restoration, and to use Josh's words earlier, our freedom, may depend on some wisdom from Amos. Since we are Gentiles being grafted into the faith through the coming of Christ. J.A. Montier says, because we have vision of faith through Christ, scratch the surface of the prophecy of Amos and out comes a theological hope of eternal security, which is in fully biblical terms, means that the people of God, chosen by God, of God's own deliberate and free will, are also kept by God through all the changes and chances, falls and failures of life, and are finally brought by God into eternal and complete enjoyment of all of the benefits and blessings which God from all eternity has purposed. Amos did not possess the knowledge of the full divine working in Jesus Christ, but he possessed the reality of that work in the revealed religion of the people of God. The Bible indeed speaks with one voice, and there is insistence that God, who will reconcile all things, will never let his people go. For Christians here and now, I have written down a few thoughts about how Amos can speak to us in our own healing, in our own freedom. These are just thoughts that came to me as I spent the last few weeks in this book. Number one was, let justice roll like the waters, as it says, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. If justice is like water, we, the people of God, get washed up in it. Water symbolizes life for everyone, but it also symbolizes chaos. The work of justice is not easy. Number two, there's a point where Amos says, the people, they push aside the needy, they crush the righteous, and they keep silent in exchange for prudence. I ask, when do I value prudence over the risk of doing justice? How and when might my silence work against justice? Also a big theme for me as I spent time in Amos was don't pretend to care. Mainly about our religious beliefs. There's things I can pretend to care about in life. Baseball's one of them. Window coverings is another one. Getting better at that. <laughs> but when it comes to my view of God and my experience of God, as a religious person, I cannot pretend to care. It's almost as if God hopes that we wouldn't care at all, instead of watching us pretending to care. 
And what I have learned with baseball and window coverings is that they are things of God. Therefore, caring about the people involved in those things of God is caring about what God cares about. Whatever it is, you have your things in your mind that you pretend to care about. But on a bigger scale, love, mercy, justice, marriage, the church, society, stewardship of time and resources, don't pretend to care. It is better not to care than to pretend. I think we have made major mistakes in Christian history. And I believe that those always started with false religion. And false religion leads to false societies, like it did in Amos' time. Number four, if you're still with me on the numbering. (laughs) I started to consider what in my life is luxury that I have maybe become desensitized to. Notice it, name it, don't complain. My last day on Instagram was the day that I saw like three people complain about doing the laundry. After all these years and resources spent in making laundry machines to make it easy for us, we still complain about our luxuries and we use our devices to do it. (laughs) Our luxurious devices. We still complain. Israel became desensitized to their own luxuries. In a recent survey, millionaires said that they would need to make up to seven million more dollars to achieve happiness. So given the data in this survey, if you have $8 million in this country, you can be happy, according to the millionaires. I'm afraid that this is true not only for millionaires, but for people in different economic segments of our society. The data shows that once our daily needs are met, our happiness level does not necessarily increase exponentially with increasing income, although it can. So where are we trying to find happiness? Hey kids, welcome back, I'm almost done. (laughs) Number five, (laughs) be careful with the religious cliches. Amos won't use the term the God of Israel when he speaks to the, the people of Israel. Because the God of Israel had become a cliché and it had become meaningless at that point. Because Israel wanted nothing to do with God. Amos instead uses the name, the Sovereign Lord God. And he says to Israel, your God. Number six, and we're getting to the end. Welcome back, kids. The word stronghold in the book of Amos is mentioned many times. A stronghold is a place that has been fortified so as to protect it against an attack. I have considered my own strongholds as I have been reading this book. 
I have also been considering what mountainside communion strongholds may be. They're not military ones, but we can all consider our own strongholds. And the question with that is, where is our dependency? Finally, as we head to the table, for our own healing and freedom this morning, may we remember that God is not absent from life's troubles or from life's pleasures. And God's love holds them all. God is in the weeping of the night, and God also promises to bring joy in the morning.